0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today under pressure, so let's turn in our Bibles to First Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled "Christians and the State."
1: When the Christian faith first began, it had none of the protections that were offered other religions. Judaism was afforded a number of religious freedoms from Rome. Jews would not be required to pour out libations to Caesar, nor would they have to proclaim Caesar as Lord. See, Rome understood, at least for some time, that the Jewish problem required special dispensations that lasted of course until the war of the jews when you know the romans completely destroyed jerusalem and its temple and drove the jews from the promised land but that special dispensation that was afforded to the jews because they were monotheists and would not bow to any other gods well that was not afforded to christians they were a new religion without protection you know as an example at least one of the reasons for writing the book of hebrews was because Christian Jews were being tempted to return to Judaism because of the legal protections that would be afforded to them that were now absent when they became Christians. I mean, why be a Christian, some asked, especially since it means I'll be persecuted. And so Christians needed instructions as to how to react to the state. At times the state could be benign, but at other times the state was brutal. Now, this problem between Christians and the state is not unique to the first-century church. The very nature of the Christian faith is that it's not designed to be a religion that controls the state. See, I would argue that true Christianity assumes the separation of church and state, and contrast that understanding of things to a large section of the First Testament when Israel was a nation that controlled her own internal politics. Well, in such a case, a godly king could mandate that idolatrous altars would be pulled down and that people would return to the Lord, the God of Israel. So do you see, the First Testament saw no separation of church and state, that is, until you get to Daniel in Babylon when Israel has to learn how to practice their faith in a strange land. But the Christian faith was born in an environment without political power. Indeed, they didn't have any at all for some 300 years. Constantine's conversion in AD 312, you know, that the emperor of Rome should be a Christian, well, that was a new idea. But as we know from history, the idea of a Holy Roman Empire did introduce innovations to the Christian faith, which eventually aligned it with power structures. Christian leaders then became powerful. They could sway politicians in a way that nothing in the New Testament actually addressed. Eventually, and this is the sad outcome of those events, but eventually, the persecuted church became a persecuting church. Beginning in the 12th century and then carrying on for hundreds of years, the Inquisition not only persecuted, but were also known for their heinous tortures. If anyone suspected of heresy, and by that time, the sufficiency of Christ alone was replaced by the sufficiency of the power of the church. You know, we've been studying 1 Peter, and rather than assuming that the state would protect the interests of the church, well, things were different then. And here's the point I'm trying to make. By its very nature, Christianity is so designed that as Peter has reminded us, we're sojourners and exiles. Or as the writer of Hebrews stated so well, Hebrews 13:14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And if we have no lasting city here, we must not think we can claim the city of man as our city. Let me say it again. Christianity is not designed to be the religion of political power. And whenever it comes to that, everything that happens actually does damage to the gospel. The church becomes impure. And so we're elect exiles. And while we journey to a city that is to come, we need guidance as to how to interact with governing authorities as well as the wider culture. And we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, and we ended by Peter instructing Christians to keep their conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that when they see your good deeds, they might yet glorify God. And so having given the general instructions that the conduct of Christians in the world must be unstained, that there be no hint of scandal, that the manner of life of the Christian would seem attractive and winsome to the watching world, Peter is now ready to talk specifics. So where does he start? He starts with the conduct of Christians in relationship to the state. So here I begin by reading 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, we can see in our passage that first we have a command. Then following that, we see reasons for the command. And then finally, a statement about Christian freedom. So, let's start with a command, verses 17 to 18a be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So the command, be subject. Interestingly enough, this command to be subject is repeated over and over again in the book. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter, servants be subject to your masters. Of course, Peter is addressing Christian servants, not servants in the whole Roman empire. Go down from that to chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. Again, we're talking about Christian wives, not about pagan wives. Chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So we see the repeated command on Christian lifestyle is this. Be subject. Clearly, to be subject is a Christian virtue. What does it mean? It means to submit, to place oneself under, or even to obey. It's to recognize the authority of another over some aspect of your life. And it's going to become clear that no command to be subject is absolute. That is, Christian wives are not told to be submissive to their husbands. You know, for instance, they want them to participate in an orgy or to be subject to your husband if he wants to abuse you in some fashion. You know, this command to be subject, as we're going to see, is to recognize the authority of another over over certain aspects of your life. Now, having said that, let's address the opposite issue. You know, in the 21st century, Christians living in you know, Western liberal democracies, we often bristle at the thought of being subject to government. You know, sometimes I hear Christians saying, well, now, you know, government's the problem. We need to resist government. We need to be suspicious of government. You know, we need to keep the government's feet to the fire. I mean, after all, the very nature of government is that it's fraught with corruption. Uh, Perhaps that's true, but let's for a moment put ourselves into the shoes of the people to whom Peter is writing. You know, sometimes historians disagree about the nature of governmental persecution. It seems that some in government at that time did not want to persecute Christians and others, well, they were far more suspicious and they were ready to get rid of Christians. So given that reality, How should Christians respond? And Peter says, begin with the attitude of being subject for the Lord's sake to every human governmental institution. So that phrase, for the Lord's sake, that's telling. Let me suggest an example. In Paul's prison letters, there are those letters which Paul wrote while he's in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal. In the letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells the church, I want you to know, my brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And then he explains. He's been chained not just to a Roman guard, but to a member of the imperial guard, the most elite guard in Rome, who are also charged with guarding the emperor himself. And while that was going on, Paul has been sharing the gospel with every single guard to whom he is chained. And consequently, all of Caesar's household is now hearing about the gospel. And Paul and Peter both believe that God sovereignly selects the leaders of nations. And because in his sovereign wisdom, God appoints leaders, both their rising and their falling, it remains for Christians to be submissive to God's will. Now, there's still something else to say. Peter says that God gives rulers a task. They're to punish evil and to praise those who do good. Now, it might be that a given leader refuses God's command, doesn't do that. Rather, he praises evildoers and punishes the righteous. Now, Peter knows about that. He's not naive. He's not blind. We know that when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, commanded John and Peter not to preach in the name of Jesus. They simply refused. They didn't submit there to the governing leaders who commanded them to do evil. See, submission, as I've said, is not absolute. However, as long as those leaders remain in power, Christians remember they're there ordained by God, even if those leaders don't understand God's purposes. And wherever we can, we must remain in subjection. We don't seek to overthrow governments. We might be prophets against the evil that they do, but we don't seek their undoing. Christian lifestyle is lawfulness, not lawlessness.
0: Back to the Bible, Canada recently wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022. And as usual, it proved to be a trip of a lifetime for those who attended. Witnessing firsthand the sites and locations where Jesus walked and taught is a surreal experience that can't help but make a profound impression on your walk in the Word. One guest wrote, my trip to Israel has tremendously impacted my faith journey by experiencing the Holy Land firsthand accompanied by competent archaeological, theological, and historical teaching, all made possible by expert planning. We're so honored and privileged to be able to host this experience for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're also so excited to announce the Israel Experience 2023 is now in its final stages of planning, and information can be found visiting backtothebible.ca or calling one 800 663 24 Verse 15
1: begins with the word for, or we might also translate it as because. See, there are many reasons why one should submit to government, but Peter is interested in highlighting Christian conduct in the world. Christians by their conduct are to be a source of attraction to others. So let's read verse 15 again. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter begins, it's the will of God. If you're a believer, the will of God is of great interest to you. Wherever you find the will of God, you want to do it. That's basic. Let's go to the next phrase. That by doing good. Now clearly, the doing good that we find here has to relate to submission to government. Why is that good? Well, when political leaders pass laws that seek to limit evil in society and encourage good, Christians should recognize that they should rejoice. Leaders need to know that when they pass good laws, the very first people they can count on are Christians. Christians don't steal. They don't break into houses. They don't take revenge on their enemies. They don't disobey rules on public order. They don't challenge the right of governors to govern. Christians can be counted on to keep the peace, to pay their taxes, to pray for their leaders, to encourage peace and harmony in society. Paul mentions something very much like that in 1 Timothy 2, 1-2. He writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way it is, we're looking to be the kind of people not who stir up strife or create social chaos, but be known as the kind of people you'd like to have on your job site or in your neighborhood or in your extended circle of friends because they lead a dignified life. It's peaceful. It's quiet. It's well-spoken of. It can be counted on, and that's what Peter is after. It is God's will that your relationship to the law, and to the governing authorities should be known to them as a people group who do good. And that's as Peter leads to a conclusion. We silence the talk of ignorant people. I mean, think of how that might have worked out in the early church. Christians were sometimes accused of being atheists. I mean, after all, they said they didn't believe in the Greek and Roman gods. And then they were sometimes accused of plotting sedition against the emperor. And they must be, because after all, they refused to pour out sacrifices to Caesar and they won't call him Lord. And Christians were also accused of being judgmental because they frowned on orgies and going to temple prostitutes and and having a mistress and having an an occasional sexual tryst. I mean, Christians would have none of that. But what happens when you get to know them? Well, you find out when you meet one that they're interested in being law-abiding, that they pray earnestly for the emperor as well as for the governor who oversees them. And they're also interested in a decorum that makes them people of peace. That is, good behavior has the effect of silencing the harshest of critics. Now contrast that to what sometimes happens in the worst examples in our day. know, I've said it before, but if I hear of one more pastor either molesting someone or abusing someone or using their power to gain sexual favors or just plain committing adultery, I just want to weep until I have no tears left. That is bad behavior, and it doesn't silence the voice of the critics of the Christian faith. Rather, it adds to the volume of the critics. They become more condemning, more ready to believe all manner of lies about the Christian faith. Peter's right. It does start with the relationship we have to the law, to government, to behavior as citizens of a country. It means we seek the welfare of the country. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah wrote, the exiles living in Babylon. They'd been taken refugees to a city that wasn't theirs, and they'd been treated shamefully. And what does Jeremiah tell them? Well, I'm reading Jeremiah 29, verse 7. He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You notice how important that is? Seek the welfare of the city, says God, where I, the Lord, have sent you. I'm sovereign. And so, seek the that Babylon prospers, be loyal to your new country, don't cheat on your taxes, don't fight against its laws constantly, seek to contribute in some fashion, and as Babylon prospers, so do you. I wonder, as Peter's writing to the believers, whether some of them wondered about their freedom as a Christian. I mean, after all, being subject to government, that sounds restricting. And that's why I think he added verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You know, it's such a wonderful statement about Christian freedom, isn't it? Because it redefines how we normally think of freedom. I mean, most people think they're free if they can do anything they want without the rotten government telling them what to do. The problem with freedom as a form of rebellion is that eventually we find we're not free at all. It's like the adolescent who says, no one can tell me I shouldn't smoke. I'm free to smoke if I want to. But then after a while, the nicotine addiction sets in and they find they're no longer free. The addiction has now ensnared them. That first act of smoking may have been a free act, but that freedom has disappeared. See, Christian freedom is freedom to say no to everything that not just harms us, but also to everything that harms others around me as well. It is to use our freedom in such a way that every decision that I make highlights good over evil, care for others over care for myself, the good of the nation over my individual rights. I don't use freedom to cover up my selfish evil intent, but in each action I'm living as one who's enslaved to God. You know, And then Peter comes to a sentence that really does need a great deal of thought. He gives four commands at the end. Let's consider all four. Command one. Honor everyone, he says. Remember, Peter's talking about Christians and their relationship to the country and the government that's over them. Honor everybody. Think about that. We're to honor fellow Christians, but here we're to honor everybody. So think it through. That might begin with honoring those people that are serving the state. Honor the police. They've been charged with keeping the peace and stopping lawbreakers. It's a dangerous job. It's filled with temptations to do wrong. The police should know that Christians, wherever you find them, are going to honor them. Honor firefighters. They risk their lives to keep people safe. Honor medical health professionals, doctors and nurses. Honor ambulance personnel. It's an interesting command because in the ancient world, a person that was honored by the king was often rewarded. Makes me think that Christians need to be civic-minded. Perhaps there's an opportunity to contribute to a building of a new hospital in your community. Well, be involved. How can I help? Perhaps I can contribute. But honoring everyone might also have something to do with honoring those people who are despised by others, such as the homeless and the marginalized, the elderly, the people who need help. It may be that there are those who have only felt the contempt of others. They should know the honor of believers. And it goes further. Honoring everyone might also mean that we show love and concern for those who are on the opposite side of issues that we're on. You know, in our highly politicized world, in which divisions between people of various political viewpoints is only widening, showing respect and care for someone with whom we deeply disagree can be absolutely disarming. It's winsome. It honors Christ. Go to the second command. Love the brotherhood. Here, Peter is speaking about the church. You know, one of the greatest witnesses that Christians have is that we are a community of love for each other. We meet regularly, and we don't give up doing this. While I'm recording this, we're living at a remarkable time. Churches have come out of lockdown due to the coronavirus, and amazingly, we're finding fewer and fewer people going to church. And I don't need it, I hear people say. But imagine you said that to your spouse, honey, we don't need to spend time with each other. I don't need it. You see, love demands that we spend time with each other. It demands we don't give up the habit of being together and praying with one another and serving Christ with one another. The third command, fear God. That command is especially important given the reality of persecution that day. Listen to what Jesus said about that in Luke 12:4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now say this, anybody who fears God no longer fears man. And then Peter gives the last command, honor the emperor. You know, the word honor was used in reference to all men. And Peter is saying, if that's how you're going to honor all men, you have to know it also applies to the emperor. And for us today, we must think of our prime minister or president. Even if you disagree with his politics, honor him. And so Peter has begun to describe Christian conduct in the wider non-Christian culture, a culture that has caused some of them to suffer. And here's what Peter says. Make it easy for non-Christians to believe as they observe
0: your way of life. Thanks, John. Uh, This is a bit of a tough question, but you know, something came to me uh, in the light of these last couple of years with the pandemic. And it was the evolving disunity or seeming disunity in the body of Christ. What should we know about the church and how we ought to conduct ourselves even when we disagree? Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, we're always going to disagree about something, aren't we? I mean, the fact is that we all have given given minds and we have different experiences and we process things differently. We look at the world differently. We have different needs, all these kind of things will lead us to handle things differently. I mean, you know, the scripture gives us a lot of things that guide us into unity, that we prefer one another, that we seek to address the other person's needs rather than our own. That's a good starting place. And that we seek the values of Christ more than our own. These things are essential to unity.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. June is Back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources and even produce new ministry resources thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year-end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift has doubled the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year-end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.